somebody comes to you in great need and you say, okay, here's an opportunity for me to profit off of their problems and you give them a great rate of interest and you say, high rate of interest, and you say, yeah, I'll help you out, but you're going to be in debt to me for this much and then they're not going to be able to pay that either, so they're going to keep accumulating more debt and then you end up essentially owning them or causing them great problems. So if that's what we're talking about, so then it wouldn't be so difficult to understand. The idea of there being something morally wrong with acting like that is much more intuitively relatable and something that other cultures and laws have as well. And there is an aspect of that that's not irrelevant. It definitely is part of the theme of ribbis, and that's what the word neshach represents. So the word ribbis doesn't actually appear in the Torah. That's the rabbinic construct. In the Torah, you have the language of Neshech and Tarbis. So the idea of Neshech connotes fighting, and that's what the Sefer Achinoch understands, that the problem is you're biting into a person and you keep biting and biting because they keep getting further and further in the hole, and you have caused them great problems. So there is an element of that. That's not irrelevant, but that doesn't explain the whole thing because there are many, many details of Ribis that are particularly surprising, maybe counterintuitive, and there are so many, I don't think we'll even get to all of them today, but just to highlight some of the questions that Ribis presents, especially if we take this model, it doesn't seem to perfectly fit. This model that you are exploiting a person in need and basically victimizing that person. So there are many details of Hilchus Ribis that don't seem to fit that model at all. So among the details that present the question is that, first of all, there is no rate that is acceptable. So in contemporary culture, there certainly is a rate that's considered normal and reasonable, and the idea of predatory lending is when it goes beyond a certain rate. But the idea of having some kind of basic return is completely accepted in contemporary culture, for sure. But that's not the case when it comes to halacha. When it comes to halacha, the Torah prohibits even the smallest amount of interest. And we also see that, and hopefully we'll discuss as much as we can, that Chazal clearly took that message and ran with it because there are many, many surim drabonah that are built onto this to really eliminate any kind of small degree of profit. So it's a very absolutely conveyed and that doesn't seem to fit the predatory lending model as much. What is also very significant to note and a very major difference, if we use a model of a criminal and a victim, so it's very hard to understand here, because in this case, the victim slot, the borrower, is considered to be in violation of ribis just as much. The ISR applies to both of them. The ISR applies both to the person who is lending and the person who is borrowing. So that seems to be a very non-intuitive detail if we look at the borrower as a victim. So why is he committing a crime just as much? It happens to be that the Mishnah tells us in Bab Mitzia, understanding from the Pesukim, that it's not even just them, but anyone who has anything to do with this story, the borrower and the lender and the witnesses and the scribe, anybody who is at all a partner to this whole experience is going to be in violation of the Isser. So that's certainly very striking and usual, especially the focus on the borrower. So that's the detail that needs to be understood. In addition, really together with that, maybe it's a necessary part of that, but it's really another thing that is quite striking, is that if we have a 
criminal victim kind of structure here. So normally, if the victim is okay with it, so then that's not a crime. So if I put a gun to your head and say, give me your money, so then I'm robbing you. But if you come and offer me the money, so then there's no crime. So normally, when it comes to Benad Mechaveros, we have a concept of Mechila, that the person who is having their rights protected normally has the right to say, I'm ocho, I'm okay with it. This is something that I can allow. But here, that very much is not the case, which maybe you might see as the logical connected point to saying that the borrower is also part of the Avera, but they both need to be true in order for that to be the case, but it's still a striking idea that there is no mechila by Rivis, and the person who's borrowing has no right and no autonomy to say that he's okay with it and he's happy to participate. And we can easily imagine that happening. Very often people are very grateful to have a loan, even if it comes at a cost, and that's what you find throughout the economy today, but nonetheless, that doesn't change anything as far as the halach is concerned, and the person who is borrowing is part of the Avera, and he's not able to be mochel. One other detail that we'll throw in is that if we really are talking about a moral offense, so many of the principles that we understand to be moral principles usually correlate with Shavah Mitzvah Bani Noach, and would apply when dealing with non-Jews as well. When it comes to ribis, it's very explicit in the Torah, and it's not even a word that is given to multiple interpretations like some of the other times you find the Chumash. Here the Torah is very clear and explicit that the prohibition of ribis is only between Jews. So if the borrower or the lender is not Jewish, so the prohibition of ribis doesn't apply. So there's a machlokis, there's some Rishonim who want to address that on either point, that uh, some who hold this implication of the Gemara that maybe there should be a Nisad Rabbanan regarding non-Jews, and on the other hand, there's an implication of the Pasuk that the Rambam took more literally, that maybe there's a mitzvah specifically to lend to non-Jews with interest. La Halacha, we treat this as essentially a neutral point, that it's not Asr or a mitzvah, that when dealing with non-Jews, you have the right to do either way, you can lend money with or without interest, so they don't follow the Rambam's view or the other view about this, but that itself is striking, that there is a specific focus exclusively on Jews, and what exactly does that say about the nature of this issue? So those are a couple of unusual details. Everybody with me so far? Are you following? So how can we understand all of those details if we are looking at this as a predator kind of situation? How do all those details fit? So I'll mention four theories of understanding what this is about. And I don't know if any one of the theories answers all the questions, but if we take aspects of all the theories together, it does address hopefully all of these questions or in different ways. So what is Ribis really about? So there are a couple of ways to look at it. And one way that is a Lamdusha issue that the Achronim talk about, it's relevant also to understanding the theories, is do we look at Ribis as what it seems to be, a Avera ben Adam lechavero in the area of Mamanos? So here you're talking about monetary transactions between people. Sounds like that should be a ben Adam lechavero concept of a Hosha Mishpat nature. Or do we see this as something else that's not really ben Adam lechavero at all? It's actually ben Adam lemachom. This is really between you and God more than it is between you and the other person. And it's really more of a Yeridea kind of concept. And a big clue that that might be the case is if you want to look up Hilchus Ribis, so where do you find it? 
in Yerdeya. It's actually not in Chosh Mishpat, it's in Yerdeya, which maybe is an indication there's something different here. The tour explains why he put it in Yerdeya, but either way, the fact that it's in that section of Shulchan Aruch and not where you would expect all the other monetary laws to be found in Chosh Mishpat is itself significant, and maybe that tells us that there's something different going on. So that's part of the background here, this chakira of whether we're talking about a ben adam l'makom or a ben adam l'chavera kind of a vera, or maybe some kind of a hybrid. So to keep that in mind as we consider the four theories, so one way to look at it is what emerges from some of the Rishonim, that the idea is that it is a ben adam l'chavero, but it's kind of a enhanced idea. That yes, it's true that a basic level of interest is considered normal and acceptable and not immoral in the world. But you wouldn't do that to your brother. So if somebody comes and needs money and you work out at a reasonable rate, that would be understandable. But if your brother needs money, so then you help him, no strings attached. And it could be that the theme of Ribbis is there to emphasize that familial relationship within the Jewish people. The Avni Nezer has many chuvas by Ribbis, so part of them is under a section that had a special title. He called that section Kuntras Bris Achim. So why is he called it Bris Achim? So Bris is an anagram of Ribbis, that's cute. But besides that, the notion of it being a covenant among brothers, that this is what enforces the and reinforces the relationship within the Jewish family, so perhaps that's the nature of the concept, and that's why it transcends what would otherwise be expected from basic morality. So if that's the case, how do you classify it? I think that is a Ben Adam Lechavero, but it's an unusual kind of Ben Adam Lechavero. It's an enhanced Ben Adam Lechavero, that often we think of the Ben Adam Lechaveros as essentially synonymous with principles of morality and that they come from that kind of understanding. So maybe this is beyond that and that basic morality wouldn't require you to go that far, but this is a special enhanced that only applies to a certain population because it reflects something more than morality, maybe comparable to another din that's in Yerodea, which is also subject to a discussion if that's Ben Adam Lechaver or Ben Adam Lechaver or not. And it seems to be unusual because it only focuses on certain specific individuals. So it's beyond the basic morality that is required of any two people. But it's still perhaps seen as a Ben Adam Lechaver, that's a discussion in that context. So it could be here also, this is essentially enhanced Ben Adam Lechaver that is more than what is required by basic morality. Another possibility, though, is that it is a Ben Adam Lamakum kind of idea. And how would you explain that? So this could be explained maybe by looking at its context in Parshas Bahar. That there in Parshas Bahar, we have it right with the mitzvah of Shemitah. So when it comes to Shemitah, we know that mitzvahs such as that are connected very much to themes of Emunah. And that we're asked to believe that God is going to take care of us even when it seems harder to believe. So to use the model of Shemitah, to think for a second, let's say somebody were to say, okay, I'm going to observe Shemitah, but only on one condition. I want the rabbis to guarantee me in advance that if I have any shortfall, they will pay for everything, and only if I have a signed guarantee will I observe Shemitah. So that may be technically a fulfillment, but that's not going to be too impressive as far as Zemunah is concerned. So maybe you have a similar kind of structure here, that what is Ribbis really about? That here, this is connected to the mitzvah of lending money, and it's important to appreciate the role that lending money has. 
that this is actually the paradigmatic symbol of chesed. If I were to ask you to give me examples of chesed, so other things come to mind first. When we talk about Tzvikr Cholim and Yicham Avelim, other kinds of things that are more obviously chesed-related. But if you look in the Chumash and you look in the Gemara, so a lot of real estate is given to lending money as representative of chesed. About half of it is about lending money. Lending money is considered to be a huge symbol of the whole concept of chesed, both in the Chumash and in Shas. It's something that really represents that whole ideal. So if you have that mentality that this is really symbolic of the whole realm of chesed, so somebody who wants to charge interest, so he may say that, okay, God, you want me to engage in chesed? You want me to lend money to people? I'll do that, fine, but I'm only going to do it on one condition. I'll do it if I am guaranteed in advance that I will get a return that is nothing fancy, nothing extreme, but the same as I would have done in the bank. That if I left my money in the bank, I would get a level of interest. So, God, you want me to lend my money to somebody? I'll do it as long as I'm guaranteed in advance that I'm going to get the same kind of return as I would in other endeavors. So, what's the problem there? The problem is not that that's offensive to... The borrower, the borrower might be very happy with that arrangement, but it's offensive to God. God said, I want you to lend money and take my word for it that that's going to be okay. And you're saying, no, I'm only going to do it if I have a written guarantee and everything is written in paper that is going to give me the same kind of return as I would otherwise. So perhaps that's understood as a bein adam l'makum rather than a bein adam l'chaveru because the offense is against God in the way he relates to this mitzvah. Now that could explain... Another quirk that is very significant, so we'll just pause in our explanations to mention how this could also address one of the many other quirks in Rebis. There's so many non-intuitive concepts here. So one of the perhaps surprising ideas is, the more time we have, we'll try to talk about the distinctions between Rebis Torah and Rebis Midrabanan, and that's very important because there are many levels of Rebis, and as we noted before, Chazal added on a lot of layers so there are many different levels of ribbis drabanan. So clearly they understood a very major theme here. But there are many practical differences between ribbis darais and ribbis drabanan. So there are many nafkaminas la halacha. We'll see how many we can get to. But as far as what defines what is ribbis darais and what's ribbis drabanan, what makes it daraisa and what leaves it to be a drabanan, is that for ribbis to be daraisa, it has to be set in advance. It has to be what we call ribbis kitsutsa. And in fact, in the Sfarim, you find Ribbis Kitsutsa essentially interchangeable with Ribbis Daraisa because that is the core defining element of when it's Daraisa and when it's not, that it has to be set from the initial stage of the transaction. So if somebody pays later and it wasn't a part of the condition, so then that is going to probably involve Yisurim, but most likely Yisurim Darabanan and not Yisurim Daraisa. So it's very striking that that is the detail, and just to highlight how striking and non-intuitive that is. So let's say somebody comes and wants to borrow money from me. And let's give two scenarios. So scenario A, somebody comes and wants to borrow money from me. So I would say to him that, okay, but you know I have to be responsible and I have a business, so I'm going to expect you to pay me interest. So I'm going to lend you $100, and I want you to give me back $110. So then when it comes time to pay back, he says, okay, here's the 100 and here's the extra 10. And I say, it's okay, forget about the 10. I don't really need it. I just had to maintain my business standards, but I'm, I'm willing to forgo that. 
That's scenario A. Scenario B, he asked me for $100, and I say, sure, here's $100. I don't mention anything about interest. Then he comes to pay me back, and I say, you know what, I think that I should deserve some interest here. I would expect 110 And he's taken by surprise, and now he's got to actually pay me the extra 10 So from the morality perspective and the predatory perspective, which case is worse? Second is clearly worse, right? A lot of reasons, right? The first case, I didn't even take the ribbis. And the second case, I not only take it, but he's taken by surprise. I think from the predatory perspective, the second case is a lot worse. But, lahalacha, the first case is an isa and the second case is not. Right? Because the daraisa is in the deal, even if, as most understand, even if I don't collect afterwards. So it doesn't mitigate at all the isser. I'm not allowed to collect afterwards. It may be a different isser, but or a part of the answer, but it doesn't mitigate the fact that I made the deal with Ribis. So the answer is specifically on making the deal, what we call Ribis Ketsutsu. And the second case, where I actually did harass the guy, and I actually did end up taking money from him, and he didn't even know it was coming, and all of the moral issues that come with that are still there, but as far as the technicalities of Ribis, that's going to be Durabanan, because it wasn't set up that way in advance. So... That idea is striking, but perhaps we can understand that in light of this second explanation, that if the idea is it's an offense against God, the offense is, is in the deal. The offense is not in the collecting of ribbons, that's its own problem, but the offense is saying I'm only going to lend the money under these circumstances, that I need to be guaranteed in advance that I'm going to get this return. That's where you are offending God, that's where there is the there of an Adam component, and perhaps that's why there is such a focus on Ketsutsa. hope you realize I'm using these explanations also to slip in all the halachas, so that's how we try to use our time as effectively as possible. So together with that, the third explanation could also explain some other details. Uh, a third explanation you could say is that maybe the understanding here is different, that maybe what's the issue with taking ribbis? Maybe the concern is that essentially here you have the mitzvah of halva, as we noted, one of the main themes of chesed, and closely connected to the mitzvah of staka, and perhaps even a preferred version of staka. You help somebody out with lending rather than a straight gift, so this is something that is more dignified and people sometimes appreciate more, so it's possible that this is actually a preferred form of staka. So if you see halva as closely related to staka, so to think about it this way, so when it comes to staka, so yes, we have discretion, and it's a complicated topic, the whole notion of kedimus and staka, but there's a balance between some degree of discretion and also certain chiyuvim and priorities that you're obligated to give staka and first to those who are higher on the list of priorities. So imagine if your decisions in giving out staka, giving out loans, the recipient could pay you. So that would be highly problematic. And just to think about it in a different way, even though you're dealing with your own money here, but from the perspective of an obligation of staka, imagine if you were in charge of a fund that others contributed to, and it's your job to disperse the fund to needy people, whether it's loans or it's staka. So a person in that position who's supposed to disperse funds, honestly, imagine if he took payments from the people who were receiving it. So that would certainly be seen as scandalous, right, to have his decisions influenced by the recipient to say, listen, you give me $100, I'll give you 10 back. 
So that would certainly be understood as something very scandalous, as akin to bribery. So perhaps that's what's going on, that maybe there's an obligation to help people out, and those decisions, who you help out first, should be made somewhat objectively, somewhat based on these halachic principles, and to take a payment for it from one recipient is going to mess up the system, is going to essentially be a form of shochat. So if that's the case, that could also explain a lot of other things. First of all, it could explain why there's no mechila and why the borrower is committing the same avera. That would be explained very well by this, because the borrower is not the victim. The victim is the guy who didn't get the loan, the guy who lost out to this borrower because he didn't pay the extra fee, so he's the one who loses out. So if that's the explanation, it's very easily understood why the borrower is not allowed to be mochel and why he's committing the aver the same way, because he's essentially the one bribing the person with the funds that he should be the person who's going to receive them. And that could also explain another din, which we'll sneak in here, that there is a concept in ribis of ribis dvarim, which has all kinds of implications also. It's probably drabanan, although the Gemara connects it to a Pasuk. So there is a possibility that Ribbis Dvarim may even be Daraisa, but for Daraisa, like we said, it would have to be set up, so it's unusual that you're going to have Ribbis Dvarim that is set up as part of the deal. But the idea of Ribbis Dvarim is that not only is it prohibited to pay money for a loan, but you're also not supposed to benefit the giver in any way, even just with words and with things that are in between words and money. So if you treat the person nicely in a way that you didn't do beforehand, and that's a careful consideration what falls into this category and what doesn't, but any kind of benefit that you wouldn't be providing normally, but you're providing specifically because he lent you money, could be under the heading of ribis dvar. So again, if it is possibly a daraisa, for it to be daraisa, it have to be kitsutsa, so it's very high school to say, okay, I'll lend you money if you treat me nicely. But uh, so it's unlikely for that to come up that way, but theoretically, maybe that's where there might be room for it to be connected to the Pasuk. But presumably, we're dealing with drabanans for the most part, but still, the idea that there is any kind of prohibition like that is a little bit hard to understand if we see the predatory model. Because, okay, so if I take money from you for lending you money, so then potentially I am pushing you further into the hole. We see how that's a problem. I'm adding on burdens to what you're already dealing with. But it doesn't cost you anything to be nice to me. So the idea that there's a problem of ribbis dvarin, it sounds like the issue isn't so much the burden that's put on the borrower, it's the benefit to the lender. So why should that be the problematic part of the equation? So on this theory, we could maybe understand what the issue is. That it's not only that you're imposing a burden on the borrower, but the lender also shouldn't benefit from one borrower over the other because that's going to influence his decisions in ways that may not be appropriate. So if, again, it's a shochad kind of model, so that would also fit because in Hilcha Shochad, you also have a concept of shochad var, that you can bribe a judge with money or you could also bribe a judge with being nice to him. And that also would be under the prohibition of shochad. So, again, this theory would maybe explain why that concept exists and would fit such a model. It is... Uh, 
it's a difficult topic, because that impacts on the question of how much you can be grateful to the lender, and there's a whole discussion in post can you say thank you or not, and uh, are there other phrases that are better than thank you, is it better to say tizkula mitzvahs, is it better not to say tizkula mitzvahs, is it better to say thank you, uh, Shlomo Zalman has a truth where he says anything that's plain derech eretz, he thinks could not be a, a violation of this concept, but it's noteworthy that it's a discussion, comes up also in the earlier literature, the acknowledgement of sponsors in Svarim was discussed whether that's a problem of Ribas Dvarim. Did they get covered for having sponsored the Svarim? Should that be a Ribas Dvarim issue? But uh, that would also be a different model because Ribas only applies if you have a loan, and most sponsorships now are not given as loans, so the concept really wouldn't come up, but in the earlier literature you see this discussion, so presumably they were talking about loan models, people sponsored Svarim with loans, and then the extra that they would get back in COVID raised an issue of possible group of Svarim. Hi. Uh, is, is it a problem, I, mean, I missed this, but is it only a problem with hard cash? Or so, if I lend you something and I'm loaning you my, you know, I don't even know what, Yes, okay. okay, so let's discuss that for a second, and out of order, but we'll take as much as we can. That basically, two distinctions. So, first of all, ribis only applies to halva and not to she'ela. So, what that means is, in English, the translation loses it. So, we use the same words for both in English, so it gets complicated. But in Hebrew, there are different terms. So, the difference between halva and she'ela is that she'ela, you return the same item that you got back. And halva, as the Gemara says, that you consume the item and you give back something else that's supposed to be of the same value. So that's the fundamental difference, that we don't have ribis by she'ela at all. And in fact, what that is, that's called rental. So if I borrow a physical item from you and I give back that same item and I pay you for that, so that's called renting the item. So that's fine. We have rentals, that's no, there's no objection to that in halacha. So it is an interesting discussion philosophically, and uh, Christians discussed this also, why we don't have a concept of rental by money, and why that would seem to be a problem. There are some other theories as to why that is, even in the Svarim, that suggest that maybe this could add additional theories to ribis, that maybe the idea is that items are of inherent usage, and therefore, to pay for the usage of the item, there's no problem with that. But money only has its potential through the effort of what a person does with it. And therefore, to charge for that is basically cutting into their ability to make something of themselves. So there are theories along those lines, both in Jewish and non-Jewish sources, that connect it to something like that. But they thought that otherwise it's hard to understand. How come I can rent out objects, but I can't rent out money? So that's one fundamental distinction that Ribas doesn't apply at all to She'ela, but does apply to Halva. But it's important to clarify that the terms Halva and She'ela do not mean money and not money, because there are things that are not money that could be subject to an Isra of Ribas. That if you borrow food, let's say, and the idea is then you're going to consume the food and give back different food, so then that could also be an Isra of Ribas. So it's not about money versus non-money, but it's about situations where you give back the same item as is, or you give back something different that's supposed to represent the value of the original thing. A question about that? That's, uh, that's clear? So let's say I return, I return an item that mm-hmm. I rented. Yeah. I pay you back the exact value that we agreed on. And then I say thank you. So there's no Isra Ribas at all there, because you, there was no halva. 
So if you borrowed an item, so then there's no, it's completely separate from the concept right. of the But the example Rabbi gave about food, though, so if I, even if I reached it exactly the same amount and I gave you back the right food, and then I say thank you, I could have just been over on So potentially, with those situations, it's going to be probably a couple levels removed because chances are, even though there's potentially an issue that I saw with food, but it's very unlikely that you're actually engaging in ribbons consistent with food. So the derisa that's going to be involved will require that kind of setting up. So you're probably dealing with Rabbanus to begin with, and then already you're going to have more basis to be makel. So you get a couple of steps removed, and time permitting, we'll see how many differences we can identify between the derisa and the Rabban. Hi. When you borrow a car, so the car is the Horashela, but the yes. gas would be... So presumably the gas is not the focus of the... You know, that's just Derek Harris. You don't want the person to suffer from the fact you borrowed their items. So it's not that there's nothing to discuss, but I think that's the, the way to understand it, that you, you have no focus on borrowing their gas. It's just that it's not nice to get back the car in a way that's less functional than it was before. But so that distinction, though, is important. It's crucial here. And it also then becomes important to appreciate that we have to define what is called currency and what isn't. So just to explain this point, that the, because in addition to, even though we say that it's not about the difference between money and non-money, but money does play an important role because the question of inflation comes up. So you might say, all right, so if I borrowed $10 from you, but then inflation happened in between, so I should be able to adjust for inflation and pay you back more, and that's not really interest because I'm just giving you the same thing that you gave me, adjusted for inflation. So we don't recognize that halacha because the halacha, so the Gemara talks about Ribis in the fifth parak of Bav Metziah. The fourth parak of Bav Metziah talks about Ona, and there it establishes what is called money and what is not called money, what's called currency and what's not called currency. And the way the halacha understands it is that even though in secular talk and secular economy, so we talk about the dollar rising and falling and losing value and getting value, but the halacha doesn't see it that way. The halacha sees currency as what is constant and everything else changes in relation to the currency. So if a dollar used to get you a carton of milk and now you'd have to pay $5 for a carton of milk. So we sometimes talk about that, or we usually talk about that as the dollar falling in value. But the halacha wouldn't see that as the dollar falling in value. Milk got more expensive. So milk changed, the commodities change, and money doesn't change. So that ends up having nafkaminas of its own because I can't adjust for inflation with the cash because that's considered constant. So the halacha doesn't recognize the money as changing value. And if you borrowed commodities, so those theoretically could change in value, but that makes things worse because that's where a potential of accidental ribis comes up, of inadvertent ribis, and that brings up Yisurim called Saab the Saab, let's see if we can get to that, that there are problems with lending commodities because there's a potential issue daraisa, but even if it's not a daraisa, you're not doing it on purpose, but the change of value that potentially could happen, that could create a inadvertent ribis drabanan situation, and there are exeris that apply to that. So that is all. Question about that? Yes, yeah, so I, I don't know if we're going to say that. So if I, lend, if I lend you money, you pay that money, even if the value of the money changes. But if I lend you a card of milk, you could either give me a card of milk or the money that cost me to lend it to you. Well, that's where there's a difficulty in cards, because theoretically, if I lend you food, so and you eat it and pay me back, so 
if you're just planning on giving me back the same food, so then it shouldn't really be a problem because it should be the same thing for the same thing. The problem is that Chazal were worried that the value would change and that even though you're thinking back, you're giving, you think you're giving back the same thing, you're essentially giving ribbis because I, if I lend you two potatoes and you give me back two potatoes, so that should be no problem, except that if the potatoes got more expensive in between, so now you're giving me back more value than I lent you. So that could create a problem of ribbis to and therefore Chazal said you can't do it that way. And so that's what the prohibition of saw saw, and there is a problem with lending commodities because of that, and there are all kinds of ways to address it, so Chazal also put in many easy ways to account for the problem, because it's kind of a far-removed consideration of a ribbis but there are all kinds of rules, it's the time permitting we can get to them, that affect how you can lend commodities. That also has big nafkaminas for people who are involved in currency trading, because currency remains constant, that means the currency of your country. But the currency of other countries, so that becomes a commodity for the people in this country. So other currencies against the dollar, they do change, because something's got to change if they, have, they relate to each other differently. So other currencies are considered commodities. We call peri for the halachas of ribis and dono and other things. So therefore, people who engage in commodity trading have to be aware of the halachas to address the sal situation, because that essentially triggers a lot of the same issues. Also, again, there are ways to deal with it, but there is a concern that Chazal were picking up on, and that's something that they addressed. Just to say a little bit about the Hashkaf about that, because it's going to be relevant to Heterisko uh, also. So when you learn the halachos of Sa'a so what might strike you is, okay, here Chazal put a prohibition in, but they also made it pretty easy to work around it. So it sounds a little bit like you're playing a game here because it's so easy to address it. But if you understand the appreciation of what's going on, that here we're not talking about overt ribbis, we're talking about something that rabbis were concerned had some connection to ribbis and somewhat of a remove. So therefore, the consciousness raising is what's most important. So if having to take the effort to account for it, even though in the end of the day it allows you to do what you want to do, but it accomplishes the same goal, that you had to make the effort to account for it. So since the whole purpose was a gedder essentially on top of it to stop you from having a relationship to ribbis, so then accounting for it also accomplishes that, and that's why presumably they made it so easy to offset. And so while we're talking about ribbis rabbanan, we'll just mention also that the different categories of ribbis rabbanan that exist reflect different kinds of things, that some of the categories of ribbis rabbanan are there because they may lead you to do ribbis, so therefore they're more xera-oriented. And some, we have havak ribbis, is a different language than ribbis drabonan, different categories, and the idea of avak ribbis is more the language connotes as a taste of ribbis, meaning that it's not so much that we're worried it's going to lead to something, but that it has some aspect of what's going on, and therefore the rabbi is prohibited in that category, and there are different nafkaminas for different categories of ribbis drabonan that reflect that difference. So that's all as far as our third explanation. So what about a fourth explanation in the whole concept of ribbis? So it could be, we could go back to the beginning, that maybe ribbis is actually exactly what it looks like, 
and that maybe it's about predatory lending, and that maybe the problem is that, yes, you're taking advantage of somebody who is in need, and that's the whole problem. So how do we explain all the quirks that we spoke about? How come it applies at any rate? And how come the borrower can't be mocha? So it could be that these are essentially policy factors that the Torah is incorporating, that first of all, as far as why does it apply at any rate? So maybe we can't uh, calculate exactly when it becomes oppressive and when not. So we just have across the board, the Torah says you can't take anything because who knows when it becomes oppressive, when it does the whole concept of it being reasonable at some rate doesn't necessarily kick in. But the idea that the borrower can't be mochel, and that he's a part of the Avera, so that's a little more surprising, but maybe that could also be understood, that if you have a policy that's supposed to help society, if any member of society is willing to waive that policy, then it falls apart. So imagine if you were to compare it, let's say, to minimum wage legislation. So if the government says you have to pay workers a certain amount in order to protect them from being exploited, so if any one worker says, well, I'm willing to do it, it's okay, I'm Michael, I'm willing to work for less, so then he's going to get all the jobs, and no one's going to get the protection, and everyone's going to have to do that in order to get jobs, so the whole protection is going to fall apart. So in order for it to be an effective protection, it has to be absolute, no mechila, no one's allowed to waive this right. So it could be that that's also the concept here, that the Torah does indeed want to protect people from being exploited when borrowing money. But even though normally you would think, okay, anything for your benefit, you have the right to be mochel, but maybe not here, because if you're going to say, listen, it's okay, I don't mind, I'm happy to pay the interest. So then the only people who are going to get the loans are going to be the people who are willing to pay interest, and the people who are supposed to be protected are going to be crowded out, and it's only going to go to the highest bidder. So therefore, if we do want to protect people's ability to get free loans, we have to make it absolute and not allow anyone to opt out of this plan. And that might be a factor here. So, yeah. Wouldn't that also make I mean, the worst type of predatory loan, where it would be someone who's most desperate would be the most likely to, to pay? Right, that's the problem. Again, so if you allow mechila, then it undermines the whole system. So then it's not going to protect anyone because there's going to be a pressure to be mochel, and the whole system's not going to work. So that idea that it can't be up to the borrower to be okay with it could actually just be understood in the way you may have initially thought, that it's about protection. But all of these conditions have to be there for protection. So that theory could explain another detail in Hilkos Ribbis and another, perhaps, quirk that uh, we have a rule so that ribis is not nitan mechila, that we know. So there's three potential points at which this might be relevant, where the question of mechila might come up. So if I lend you money and I say, okay, here's 100, but I want 110 back, so that's one opportunity for you to be mochil and say, it's okay, I'm happy to pay it. Not allowed to do that. Right? So mechila doesn't apply then. Let's say there's a second stage when you come to pay me back, and you're ready to give the extra, and I say, um, uh, and I say, okay, I want to take the extra ribbis, and you say, fine, I'm happy with that. So again, your mechila doesn't help. So there are already two stages where there's potential for you to be mochel at the original deal, and when you come to pay it, at neither time are you the borrower allowed to be mochel. The prohibition of mechila applies in those two contexts. But there's a third context, which is the subject of machlokas. And that is that there is an obligation to give back rivis. That's a separate pasuk that you're obligated to return rivis. So if somebody takes rivis, he has now an obligation, a mitzvah may be comparable to Hashavah's Gezela, depending on how you understand it, that you have to give back the rivis to the person who paid it. 
Now, that's one of the differences between Ribbis Dereis and Ribbis Drabana, and so it's Machokis in the Gemara, but the way we assume, the Halacha, is that Ribbis Kitsutsa Yotze B'dayanin, meaning that Ribbis Minhatora is subject to this obligation that the person has to pay it back, and it's Yotze B'dayanin, meaning a Bezdin will compel this. A Bezdin, just like it compels other monetary obligations, so a Bezdin will also force the lender to give back to Ribbis. So, that's the rule for ribis ketsutza, for ribis drabanan. So there you find the distinctions that avak ribis, we say that lots of the day shamayim, you should give it back. That bezin is not going to get involved, but it's morally proper to give back on your own initiative. And the lower level of ribis drabanan, there's just nothing to fix afterwards. It's just uh, what's done is done. So, but ribis ketsutza, you have this obligation to give back. So, what about that mitzvah? the mitzvah to give back ribbis. So let's say that's the third opportunity now for the borrower to be mocho. So, okay, it was wrong that he agreed to the deal in the first place. That was not up to him. It was wrong that he paid the ribbis. That was also not up to him. But now there's a third moment of choice that the lender, we'll call him uh, Mel the Malva, so Mel says to Louis the Lova, he says, I realize that I have an obligation to pay you back, and uh, here it is. So Louis says, okay, I don't need it. So he wants to be mochel on the repayment. This is the third stage. So is he allowed to be mochel on that? So that was a big machlokas, the Rambam and the Gaonim and others. The Gaonim said, no, there's no mechila by ribis. That's the same thing. You're now trying to use mechila by ribis. You're trying to work around the whole thing by having the mechila at that stage. So no, there's no mechila at any point. And that's what we talk about here. And you're not allowed to refuse to pay it back. You have to take it back. Uh, the Rambam, however, understood differently, and the Rambam understood that, yes, at that point, Mechila is permissible, that it was wrong to pay it, it was wrong to agree to pay it, but when the lender comes now to pay it back, so it is up to the Malveh to decide whether he wants to take it or not. That is subject to Mechila. But Taz went further, and Taz said that he doesn't have to spell it out, you can uh, have implicit Mechila. The other postgame didn't accept that, said so you have to actually explicitly be mochel, but that is the din, that Shulchan Aruch actually follows the view of the Rambam, that at that stage you can have mechila, that the recipient can decide, he's not going to receive, he's not going to take it back, and he can let the Malvik keep it. So how do you understand that? The Malvik uh, keep it. The Malvik can, can keep his uh, payment of interest. So how do you understand that? It seems like the Gaonim have a good point, we shouldn't allow mechila anywhere. So some understand this to be a part of the whole question of whether it's ben adam l'chaver or ben adam l'makom. And they say that that's connected to the question of mechila because that's always there. But then the question, why this distinction? So how come mechila only applies at that stage? So that could be for functional reasons. And it could be maybe that's the position of the Rambam that maybe really it is a ben adam And theoretically, mechila should work at any point. But we can't allow mechila at the initial stages because that will undermine the whole system. So the person's going to agree to pay ribbis because that's the only way he can get a loan. He's desperate for money, so he says he'll pay, but it's not real mechila. It's only coming out of desperation. So therefore, as a matter of Torah policy, the Torah says you can't have mechila at that stage. But once he's already received the loan, and he's already paid it back, so he's not desperate anymore, and doesn't have any external pressure to be mochil, so the, now the lender says, I'm willing to give it back to you. And he says, okay, I don't need it. That might be 
sincere. Maybe he really doesn't need it because he's not acting on any pressure to get a loan, and therefore it could be that there's a fundamental difference there. So that theory would mean that really, yes, it was always been Adam Mechabero, it's always about protecting the borrower, just as a matter of policy, we can't allow Mechila at the stages when he's desperate, but when he's not desperate, so then that might be a different story. Or, it could be, as some Achronim understand, Rebarach Ber was quoted along these lines, Rebarach Ber Leibowitz had a Talmud uh, dying grossness and became a prominent dying in London. He wrote the tshuva, is called Leiv Arya, he says a tshuva where he quotes Rebarach Ber about this, that it could be that there's different, com- different components here. That the Isser of charging Rebis, to go back to the theory we mentioned before, that maybe making a deal under the terms of Rebis, that is an Avei Rebbe Nodem That's an offense to God. And... That is where you have the inviolate Avera ben Adam Lamakum component. But once you make the deal that way, nothing can really change that. So the fact that the guy pays the ribbis later, that is only an outgrowth of this illegitimate deal. But that's not really contributing to the real problem. The real problem was the creating of the deal under those terms. That's where there is an Avera ben Adam Lamakum. So nothing that happens afterwards is going to change that. It's not right to pay the ribbis, but that's not what created the original Isser. And giving back the ribbis doesn't help either because it was the deal that was the problem. And the only thing that helps that is tshuva, but nothing later is going to undo that. But together with that, so since you're not allowed to do that, so now you have somebody's money illegitimately. So then there is a ben adam to return the money. So it could be there's two different isurim here that the taking of the money in the first place that the making of the deal under the terms of Ribis, that's an Avera ben Adam and it's inherently not given to Mechila. But giving back the money after you've already taken it, that's an Avera, that's a mitzvah ben Adam Lechavero to give back money that really doesn't belong to you. And there the person can be Mochel and say, it's okay, he doesn't need the money. So maybe there's two different components. And that also can be explained along those lines. So that's also important to appreciate how those different parts come together. And there are a lot of nafkaminas of that. We'll have to see if we can get to them. We have to turn to Hatariska in a second. But just also to mention a part of the quirky nature here, and also something very unusual, is that reflecting what we just said, that there is an attitude that many achronim have, that ribis is a strange animal, that it's both legitimate and illegitimate at the same time that as far as the Ben Adam Chavero component or the Choshen Mishpat component, it may actually be considered legitimate, that really it is a open agreement between consenting adults, and from the world of Choshen Mishpat, that it may have a certain degree of legitimacy. But the Isser is imposed on that as something else, so it's both legitimate and illegitimate at the same time. So it's going to have the language that Ribis Chovi Vataras Rasa, meaning that it is a debt that was gone into willingly, but nonetheless, the Torah prohibits it. So that has nafkaminas because it could be that on some level it actually is the property of the borrower, of the lender, once he receives it. It's not considered to be gezel in the same sense. He just has an obligation to give it back. So that could have nafkaminas, for example, for Kedushin. So if somebody says, I'll lend you $100, you have to give back $100 in a ring, and then you want to use that ring to be Makadish Shanisha, so that probably works, as opposed to if you stole the ring, you use a gazel ring to be Makayish so that's not going to work, but a ring that you acquired by Ribis, maybe so, because some have that understanding that essentially it is the legitimate debt on one level, but also illegitimate because of the Isser involved. The Chazanish thought that was an impossible concept, that the Torah is what makes things legitimate, so it can't be illegitimate and Usser, can't be legitimate and Usser, but maybe other Achonim understood differently that there is this strange hybrid, so it could be 
that the money is actually the possession of the lender once he takes it, and he has a chiyuv to give it back. That could also have nafkaminas for the yarshim, how they relate to such money, and the obligation to return ribbis that a father took and that he would inherit is on a different level. Then returning gezel, and the relationship has various nafkaminas. One case where it actually has a real nafkamina also that you should be aware of, because this could come up, and it's definitely a situation to avoid because it's a very unclear situation. If you, let's say, I lend you money and I lend you $1,000 and I'm charging $500 ribbis and we work out a plan that you're going to pay me $100 for 15 months and that's how you'll pay back this whole debt of $1,000 carrying this we call the principal plus $500 of ribbis. But the way it's structured, and this isn't as strange as it sounds because loans today are structured this way, it's interest first. So the first five payments, that's the ribbis. The first $500 is the ribbis, and then after that you start paying off the Karen. So let's say we structure it like that, and for five months you pay me $100 a month as ribbis, and then after the five months you come to this class and you realize, wait a minute, I'm not allowed to do that, and I'm the one teaching you this, you know, so obviously there's something strange here. So you owe me $1,000 from the debt, so you come to me after this class today, and you say, I just learned from you that I'm not allowed to pay that, you're not allowed to take it, so here's the deal. I already gave you $500, so I'm not giving you 1000 more, I'm only going to give you 500 more, because I already paid the 500 So I'll say back to you, no, you know, that's my, that's my problem. You know, I just teach the stuff. I don't actually have to do it. So the fact that I have to pay you back $100 that's my problem. I'll deal with that in Yom Kippur. But, or I won't deal with that, but you still owe me 1000 because the 500 that you gave, that was interest and it's mine now and you still owe me the 1000 that's a debt. So that's actually a machlok saposkin, how to relate to that. And uh, it's not an easy situation because no real safe side because if you say, no, too bad, I'm only paying you 500 there may be a strange gezel situation there because you really do owe me 1000 and I guess I have a, a strange situation where I'm not worried about my responsibilities, but theoretically you may actually owe me a thousand or if it's not that way you only owe me 500 then to pay me an extra thousand is going to be a ribbons problem so there isn't really a safe way to relate to that issue so it's something worth knowing about in advance because it does have that complexity okay so a lot of other yeah so that's a tricky question so the chachila you should definitely be concerned about that but uh, sometimes b'diyeved there are reasons to rely on, on coolers because especially one of the difficult situations you can get into is you get into a very difficult situation similar to this but even more practical so you borrow money from somebody and then you learn a helpful service later so you're legally required to pay him back by secular law and you have a, a total prohibition so that becomes very difficult what are you going to do because the, he could send the police after you and you're prohibited from paying him back so that could put people in very difficult situations. So if it's Ribbis Drabana, that helps a lot because the idea that everybody who's involved in the Isser, everybody who's anywhere part of the story is involved in the Isser, that Pashtas only applies to Ribbis Daraisa. Dealing with Ribbis Drabana, so the idea that everyone's a part of the Isser is probably not true, even though there's a problem with Naiver, but if Naiver has Heterim. So you may find yourself in a situation where you're really stuck and you need to rely on something. So to say that there's no Isra Ribbis by a mummer in that situation may be necessary to figure out how to get out of that situation. But I don't think we're so ready to encourage that. Is 
terms of your legal obligation to pay back potentially ribbis in this situation, the fact that it's Dine Mominos, is there any Dine Malchus Adina issue, or is that a separate So uh, that's where things get very complicated, especially if you have this, uh, if you have this strange hybrid of it's even, even the halacha may recognize it as legitimate on some level while also usser at the same time. So it doesn't really help practically, but it makes your head explode, you know, it creates a, a certain kind of tension. So it's something which people can easily get wrapped up in without knowing beforehand. So after the fact, you have to try to find how to deal with it, and if it's Durabanan, which often it will be, so that will allow for more latitude. But L'Chachila, certainly, you certainly don't say L'Chachila that one can borrow money and commit to Urbis because of the Dina de We also don't imply Dina de between two Jews, and we also don't imply Dina de between at least the Isser, if it's your day, like Right, so there are some exceptions to that. It gets a little complicated, but it's not going to help you, certainly not L'Chachila. And uh, the concept may have some relevance after the fact, but it's not also going to make that much of a difference. So we have to get to Hatteriska, even though there's a lot of other points to discuss, but uh, just to allow the time for Hatteriska. So, and anything I don't get to, feel free to buy the book that may show up at any point, uh, which we'll go into much more detail. But here, it's important, I think, also, and this is actually a lot of what the book is about, to address the Hashkafa of Hatteriska because that is very crucial as far as how we relate to our Avodos Hashem and our morality. And the whole mentality of what we're doing, it's very important not to be cynical or to feel like you're getting away with something. So to appreciate the hashkafa of Hatteriska, I think, is almost as important as the details of Hatteriska. So just to spend a few minutes on what the hashkafa could be. So, first of all, before explaining the details, details are very complicated, but just to have a picture of what we're talking about. So, the theory of Hatter Iska is that we have a structure which has really been in use for about uh, 500 years in its current form, or close to its current form. It's credited mostly to Menachem Mendel of Vigders, who was a contemporary of the Bach. So, a lot of times you find him referenced the Maram, Maram of Vigders, the Hatter Iska, the Maram. So it's based on a structure that is talked about in the Gemara and talked about in Shulchan Aruch, but it is adapted for this scenario, and that basically the idea is that you are converting the loan into a partnership, and that especially if the borrower is looking to use this for business purposes, so there is a structure that exists that is there to allow the lender not to be seen as a lender, but rather as an investor, and what he receives not to be seen as interest, but rather as profit from the business venture. So that will explain in a moment both the, hopefully the main details we can, and also the hashkafa, but the hashkafa that is very relevant to it, so hopefully we can relate to it in such a way that it's essentially completely understood and accepted when carried out properly. There is some history of controversy to it. Bisman Hazaf, for the most part, it's not considered controversial as a concept. Again, you could read the book for much more detail, but it does have a history of some controversy, and in the earlier sources, some talk about only using this for Ribbis Drabanan. It's not necessarily the attitude that we have today but there is a feeling that there was something evasive about it and that it should be limited to Rabbanan situations. Uh, Rishakta tells a story often is found in some Sfarim that there was a man who died, a wealthy man who died, and then later on somebody had a dream about this guy. 
and the rich guy appeared to him in a dream, and he looked terrible. So the guy dreaming said, what happened to you? And he says, I'm really in trouble up in Shemayim. Uh, they got me on ribis. So the dreamer says to him, but you always use the heteriska, so why is that a problem? And the guy says, yeah, that works down here, it doesn't work upstairs. So there was, uh, once upon a time, an attitude like that, that there was something inconsistent with the halacha, but there is a, I think it's reasonable to say there's a very broad acceptance today, although we'll talk more about that time permitting, but that acceptance probably can be explained the way that we'll try to look at now, that there's two things to consider. So in everything we do, there is the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. So we want to satisfy both. And when you break the letter of the law, so that's just an aver. When you break the spirit of the law, so that's also a problem, certainly hashkafically. And we don't want to be in a situation where you are maybe following the letter of the law, but going against the spirit of the law. So here we have to account for both. So to talk first about the spirit of the law, so we believe that it's fair to say, based on what we started off with the theories of Ribbis, so we mentioned four theories of Ribbis, and all of them, with all their differences, but all of them were predicated on the concept that we're talking about chesed here, that the Torah obligates you to engage in chesed, either without getting paid or without exploiting the person or without differentiating between people. All of the four explanations were all based on the premise that we're talking about chesed law. So an important premise here is that we are talking about business loans when we get involved with the Hatariska. And therefore, it's fair to say, it seems, that the spirit of the law is not the issue. That you're not violating the spirit of the halacha in this situation. It's just a letter of the law issue because, as we noted earlier, the Torah prohibits any kind of interest. So there's clearly a letter of the law issue if you give money and say, I want more back more. But it seems fair and reasonable to say that there's a very good case to make that the spirit of the law is not the issue. That's something which others uh, emphasized as well. So, for example, the discussion about this in the Torah Tamimah, where the Torah Tamimah emphasizes that a part of why he feels that Hatariska emerged is there was a fundamental shift in the economy and that the way things functioned is fundamentally different from the time of the Torah or the time of Chazal. That in antiquity, if somebody lended money, or somebody loaned money, so two things were true. One, the borrower really needed money to survive. He needed money to pay his bills. And the lender was not taking on any opportunity cost by providing the money. So it was nice of him to give the money, but he wasn't passing up any major investment opportunities because he parted with the money. Nowadays, says the Tarotimima, both things are not true anymore. It's possible that somebody could borrow money and he's not desperate. He just needs to pursue a business opportunity. And the lender is giving up an opportunity in favor of this guy by giving him the money. So morally, hashkafically, you can see how it's very different from what the Torah described. You still have to account for the letter of the law, but as far as the spirit of the law, as the Torah to me explains it that way, so there's a fundamental shift that really affects what the Torah was describing. Another point that was made, uh, the Sefer Beis Matasyahu, that notes this point, which is uh, also connects to theories of what Ribbis is about in a little slightly different way, that if somebody needs money to pay their bills or to pay their basic expenses, 
So that's the whole problem. They can't afford it in the first place. And you say, now on top of that, you've got to pay me extra. So clearly you're causing them problems because they didn't have enough money to pay their bills. They certainly don't have enough money to then pay you more. So that's where the Torah is saying that you're harassing this person and persecuting him by taking more. But if they don't have a problem paying their bills, they want to use this money to make more money. So then it seems personally reasonable, perfectly reasonable for you to say, okay, so you're going to make money from this money, so I want a piece of it. I want to share and also get part of this extra you're getting. There's no logic to say that it's impossible for you to pay me like there is when you can't pay your bills. So again, as far as the hashkafa of ribis, is a very strong case to be made that under heteriscus situations, you don't necessarily have the same hashkafic reality. Uh, so that's important to appreciate. Now, before explaining the details of heteriska, maybe it's important to talk about this topic, that hashkafic point becomes incredibly relevant also to how the heteriska is carried out. So there are many postkin, there's a big divergence in the history and the attitude of Poskin about this also, and this is definitely something that, for your own personal spirituality, you may want to be sensitive to and aware of, that there are many Poskin who said that because of this, we have to be very careful about when the heteriska is used, and it's used purely for business loans and not for anything chesed-related, so a person needs it to pay his bills, so then it's very wrong to use the heteriska, and it is only there for pursuing a business opportunity. Ramosha Feinstein, for one, took a very strong stance on this, and he felt that not only is it morally wrong, and the Chavetz Chaim talks somewhat obliquely about this in Avast Chesed, and he basically says somebody who's going to lend money and get back a payment is not going to fulfill the concept of chesed at all. So whatever the issue is involved, you're not going to, it's not a chesed if you are getting back payment for the money. He also maybe brings up some other issues. It is possible to consider a hashkafic point that might be relevant even when you're using it for business loans. And this is something Chavz Chaim addressed that he was worried about, that it may be that when you provide money to somebody for a business opportunity, so then you're not exploiting them the same way that you would somebody who needs it for chesed. But there is another consideration, and that is that if you have a fixed amount of money, like we all do, so you could either be giving it to somebody who's going to use it for business and will pay you, or you could be giving it to a poor person who's not going to pay you. So how much is going to be available for the poor person? So maybe there's a reason to not be so excited about this, because even though you're not victimizing the business guy, but you are diverting funds that you could be otherwise using for chesed, and you'll be less likely to use them for chesed under those circumstances. So there is something to think about from that consideration. That's a part of the overall balance. But many postkin took an especially strong stance that you can only use a hetariska for a business-related loan. And if you if a person comes to you and says, I can't pay my bills, can you help me out? And you whip out a hetariska there, so it would be certainly morally wrong, but and against the spirit of the Torah. But as Ramosha notes, probably also functionally wrong, a lot against the letter of the law, because as we'll explain, the whole premise of the Hatariska is based on the idea that there is some profit-generating enterprise happening, that he's going to do something that could potentially make money. So if there is no concept of that, there's no incoming money even possibly, that he's just using it to pay off debts, so then the concept doesn't really make sense, and it could be it's just straight out ribis, and it's not only hashkafically wrong, but it is maybe even letter of the law wrong, and maybe a straight disadraisa. So some postkin 
saw it that way. There is a divergence in attitudes. In fact, the earlier generations, before Moshe, many were more makele about this. Shola uh, Meshav has many truths about this, and some later posts can adapt the attitude as well, that it's a big question how far you go with this. So if we say that it's meant to be for business, so how far can you go? What's considered business? So it is widely agreed that buying a house, for example, can be subject for a hatereska, that that's considered an investment, that even though the person who's buying it may not be thinking of an investment at all, he may only want a place to live, that may be his motivation, but it doesn't change the reality that the expectation is that a house will go up in value. So therefore, the concept of a hatereska can be applied to house purchases and to mortgages. So that is widely agreed. There were some postkin who were more machner and said only if you're going to rent out the house and it's a real business thing, but again, I don't think that's the prevalent attitude. The prevalent attitude is that buying a house is an investment, whether that's your goal or not, but it is in reality an investment, and therefore the possibility of a heteriska can be consistent with that. Hi. Hi. Um, how is that related to how banks in Israel deal with loans if yeah. Banks are very, very complicated. I don't know if we have that. Let's see if we can get the bad banks are not simple at all. Um, the but the short answer is banks do use a heteriska in Jewish banks and Israeli banks. The logic of it, which what you're asking, is subject to some analysis. Uh, we probably can't go into every detail, but certainly if you're borrowing money from the bank, which many people borrow money from banks to buy houses and to pursue business opportunities, it's probably the more common usage of a bank. So generally it probably will. It's hard to get a loan from a bank if you can't pay your bills because they want to show you, you want to show that you can pay your bills before they lend it to you in the first place. So most of the things that involve banks really are going to be for Hector Iska Roy things, but the question of whether a bank needs a Hector Iska, or should we say that there's a difference between a corporation and a person, that's a major subject of So that there were some who felt that you don't need, you don't have prohibitions of rigorous when dealing with corporations. Ramosh is a truth of saying it's all true in one direction, not the other direction. But uh, many are machmir on this situation and assume that it does apply to corporations and entities. And therefore, the Jewish banks, Israeli banks do use heteriskas, but that's, uh, the details can get very complicated. So as far as what qualifies, okay, so let's say a house purchase can be also considered business. Student loans, many posts can also make one because it felt that student loans are essentially an investment in the earning potential of the student. So he's paying for his education so that in the future he's going to earn more money so that that is also a profit-generating enterprise, even though it sounds like it's a little a step removed. But you have that logic there to some degree as well. And uh, then the question of how much further can you go? So there were those who took a very different stance than Ramosha and said that really everything is, is business-related because money is fungible, and if you can't pay your bills, then you can't invest. So helping you pay your bills is helping you do other things. So it's freeing up money for other profit-related things. So again, you could be very suspicious of that. There were those who were far less comfortable with that and not necessarily recommending it, but just to be aware that there was a range of attitudes among postkim, which Sternbrecht discusses, that nowadays if people invest in the stock market, so everybody is involved in profit-generating functions with their money, and you're freeing up funds for that. So again, there were different attitudes in postkim, but there's a real question here that the hashkafa really is about business rather than loans of need, and therefore an attitude that many postkim have, the Chaim certainly had, that it really should be limited to 
business purposes, and that if somebody says, I can't pay my bills, I need money, to take out a hetariska is highly questionable from that perspective. So that being said, we've left only a few minutes for what is a hetariska. So how does the letter of the law address this? So there are a lot of details. We'll see how much we can squeeze into it because we have a prohibition of going over the time. So what exactly is the structure of the hetariska? So there are a couple of forms of the hetariska. And there are certainly nuances that go back uh, historically. But basically, the idea essentially is, let's say you want to borrow $1,000 from me because you want to start a business. So if I was allowed to lend you this, so I'd say, okay, here's $1,000. I want back $1,100. I want you to pay $100 ribbis, so I should get back $1,100. So if we agree that hashtophically that's okay, but it's technically not okay, so how do you make it technically okay for me to give you the $1,000 and get back $1,100? So the standard form of ribbis, outside of heteriska, is we call palga iska palga halva, or palga pikadam palga halva. That is half a loan and half an investment because it means you give somebody money to watch, do something with. So that's what we call investment here. So it's half loan, half an investment. So again, I'm oversimplifying a little bit in the interest of time because there's a lot of nuances. But the oversimplified way of saying it is that so instead of my lending you $1,000 and expecting back $1,100 with $100 of interest, I'll do it this way. I'm going to give you $500 as an interest-free loan. So that is the loan, straight, with no interest at all. You'll pay me back $500 for that, no more, no less. I'm giving you another $500. The $500, that second $500 is an investment, and I am looking to be a partner with you in that. So you will take that $500 and expect to get a profit, and I will expect to share in that profit. So I want 20% from my investment, which is going to come out to $100. So if you put all that together, I get $500 back that I lend you, $500 that I invest with you, with an extra 20% as the profit. So, so far, so good. A couple of problems, though, because how do I have the ability to predict in advance how much the profit's going to be? And theoretically, and here's where you have a different spirit of the law problem, and we'll have to see how much we can speak about this, that we talk about the spirit of the law, it applies on different levels. So, like you talk about Mechiris Chametz, for example, yeah, I'm going to recommend a book to you. So, Mechiris Chametz has two concerns. One is, are you avoiding the point of the halacha? And the second is, is it not what it looks like? Now, you're saying you're selling Chametz, is that really a sale or not? So here also there's two questions to ask. So, okay, if we can agree that this whole endeavor is not an evasion of the goal of the Torah, okay, we can accept that maybe. But if the point is we're making it into an investment, so is it really an investment? So that brings up another host of issues, and it's a little on shakier ground over there, but you can address that also, that you would think that the difference between a loan and an investment is that factor of risk, that if I lend you money, I am guaranteed that you will pay it back. There's a possibility of default, but essentially what the arrangement means is that you're guaranteeing you'll pay it back. If I invest, so the whole difference is that I'm not guaranteed to pay back, and the profit may be much more based on the fact that I'm taking a risk, that I don't know that I'm going to get it back. So here, it seems to defy that if we're saying that you can predict in advance 
what the rate of return is going to be. So that seems to put it more in the loan category rather than the investment category. So that is a little suspicious on that realm. How exactly does it work? So there are different ways, but the way standard operating policy is that I'll say to you like this. I am estimating that the return on the investment is going to be 20%. I'm estimating that I'm going to get back $100 from you. You may come back to me next month and say, oh, bad news, everything tanked, and not only did I not make 20%, I lost the whole thing. I don't have anything back to give back to you. So theoretically that could happen, but I'll say to you, well, of course you're going to say that. It's in your interest, no it's in your benefit to say that, right? Because if you tell me the business failed, then you don't have to pay me anything. So why should I believe you that your business failed? I think you were wildly successful, and I think that you actually made much more, and you can easily pay me back. So we'll have this difference of opinion. So I'll say to you like this. Listen, if you stick to the prearranged rate, then we'll leave it at that, and I'm not going to ask you for any proof. Maybe you made more. I won't ask you about that. If we stick to the rate that we said before, then you'll give me the 20%, then I won't ask you any questions. But if you're going to tell me that you don't have the 20%, that you didn't make that much, then I'm going to demand proof. And you have to come and prove that, that indeed it wasn't that. How can you prove it? So I want, your, I want you to take a shvua. And I know the Orthodox Jews don't like taking oaths, but that's what I'm going to want you to do. And I want you to bring witnesses. You come with your rabbi and your chazan. They should come in front of me and testify that the whole thing collapsed. So how likely is it that you're going to want to do all those things? You're not going to want to take a shua because you know, we don't like that. And you're not going to want to bring your rabbi and your chazan in to talk about this. It's interesting that in the Truma Sadeshan, who first talked about that, the Truma Sadeshan wrote that, and he says the rabbi, it doesn't mean that this is not a joke, it's not just an obstacle course, but the rabbi who knows a little bit about business, so it's probably relevant that he actually has something to say. That kind of fell apart, fell away in the later generations. We don't actually assume that that's part of the condition, but the Truma Sadeshan wrote that that was about a thousand years ago, that, uh, that this is a part of the expectation, and he writes that it shouldn't be a harama, that it shouldn't be just a fake. It's, it's relevant that the rabbi should be somebody who's holding in business, but that hasn't made it to the later svarim. So what it seems to be is that you're essentially saying that it's very unlikely that you're going to jump through all the hoops to establish that you didn't meet that threshold. So mm-hmm. to keep things simple, just pay the prearranged rate, and that's how we're going to perceive the investment. Hi. Someone took a massive loan. I don't think it, like, Possibly. Be fine with being a shua and having the rabbi on the side. Possibly. Now, it's interesting also, there's been a lot of literature since then about whether things have changed or not. Rav Shula Rafal, who was a prominent dying that passed away a few decades ago already, but uh, he, his writings are collecting, say, from Michigan Shiloh. So he said, this one is that we have to change the whole approach because nobody cares about Shuas anymore and it's not going to be any kind of a inhibition. So instead, what you should say is, I demand that you open up all the books and make me a full partner in everything and I'm going to be uh, very involved and probably people don't want to do that and so they'll just uh, agree to a prearranged rate. So as far as the hashkafa of this, not much time for that, but yes, it does sound like this is on shakier ground. This really makes it into a guaranteed loan rather than an investment. But maybe you can mitigate that a little bit by noting that there is some degree of risk. Because like you said, first of all, maybe the guy will jump through all the hoops. So it's not guaranteed 100%. And also, there's a much more likely consideration, and this is subject to a machlokis also about how to approach it, 
that what if it's just not reasonable for me not to believe you? Now, let's say you say to me that I, I need to borrow money because there's this guy, Bernie Madoff, and he's got this great fund, and I'm going to for sure get back a ton of money, and I'll share that with you. And then the next day, he becomes literally the most famous person in the planet because he's scamming everybody. So I'm going to say, yeah, I don't believe it. I think you made a fortune off of him. So uh, I refuse to believe you. So it's a question in Poskin whether you have the right to do that, whether you have the right to say you don't believe him when you know that he actually lost it. And that impacts other things. So there are different attitudes about how much should the provider, we won't call him a lender, how much should the provider know about the endeavor that the person is doing. So there are those who felt it's good I to know more because that makes it more legitimate. It's a real investment that you really know and what he's doing. So some of the forms ask you to explain what you're doing. But others, like Moshe wrote, that it's actually a bad idea to know too much about what the person is doing because then that affects your plausible deniability that if you, you may actually be well aware that it wasn't successful at all and then to say, I don't believe you, becomes its own kind of moral question. So Postman talked about that also. So morally speaking, is it right for the person to still collect when he knows that the person didn't succeed in business? Or together with that, if you're imposing a shvua and you know that the shvua is, or either way, but even if you're imposing a shvua and you don't know, so is that a problem that you're making the guy take the shvua? And especially if you know that the circumstances don't align with that, so that's also a discussion in post what kind of moral responsibility is on the provider under those circumstances. So there is some degree of risk. There is a possibility that it's going to fall apart. So how you relate to that is subject to your attitude. So you may say that's terrible, there's risk. Or you may say, okay, it's good. There'll be a little risk. So it's a little more in the spirit of what we're looking for because we do want it to be alone, not when an investment, not alone, an investment does have risk. So for preserving some aspect of risk, maybe that makes it better. So that's also relevant to another question we'll just quickly mention that you may have been wondering, why do we have bother having it half and half? Why don't we just have it all as an investment? Doesn't that make things a lot simpler? So we'll say that I'll give you $1,000 straight out as an investment, and I want 10% rate, which in fact is better because there is a more reasonable rate than 10% is more plausible than 20%, and Rav Shalma Zalman has a truth about, so he doesn't understand how we deal with that because he's not questioning the heteriska, but having a high rate seems like that is a reward to the lender for lending you money. So you're giving him a beneficial rate. Isn't that a type of rivet? So the whole arrangement could have that problem. So the more reasonable the rate is, the better it is. But also, if you make it straight out like that, then you may solve everything. As some understands even on all levels, because there's no loan at all. If there's no loan, there can't be ribbis. So maybe you're really solving all the problems in a more fundamental way. Some thought there might still be an issue there about them. Others thought you're solving everything. So that sounds a lot better. Why don't you just make it 100% as a Picardon and Nohova? So there are those who prefer that approach. But uh, the issue is the risk, that essentially whatever is in the picadon is some degree of risk, and whatever is in the halva has less risk. So sometimes people are more comfortable having it half and half, so then the half is essentially guaranteed and the other half is subject to risk. And that's why you start with the half-half format, but there is the maybe preferable option of going to the old picadon version 
and that could be better. Just quickly mention also the concept of heterosexual clawless, which was slightly more controversial, but is widely used in banks and other businesses that have Shilas of Ribis, where they basically have a sign up on the wall essentially saying that there is a understanding that everything we're doing is within the framework of ISCA, and that is somewhat more controversial, but that, for reasons you can guess, but has also some wide acceptance that was an even more controversial suggestion. It's interesting literature to read about that. Uh, uh, a great great grandson of Rebekah Eger had a suggestion that Israel Eger was his name had a suggestion that everyone should make a personal heterosexualis once in their lifetime that they should say that every enactment every arrangement I ever get involved in is under the understanding of ISCA and it's not ideal but maybe that will be a backup system so that if people forget to actually use the heterisca or have other problems this will be a general catch-all solution and that's what he advocated so there's a fascinating literature about that there were those who were very into that plan those who were very not into that plan Ivan Cutler wrote a letter as a young man against this his father-in-law, Mrs. Zellman, was involved in that also. It was a whole back and forth, and it didn't really take off at the time. This was about 100 years ago, almost 100 years ago, like around 1922 when this was going on, just about 100 years ago. There was a whole literature about it then. Uh, there are postcom nowadays who say maybe it's not such a terrible idea, maybe it should be revisited, maybe it has potential to save people from Yisurim. So there is a fascinating literature about what exactly are the pros and cons of this idea, and that's still in discussion. But as a business using it, so that's much more widely accepted that they have these heteroisical callers. Uh, again, also has some controversy associated with it, and how exactly you do it is subject to discussion. But that's more widely accepted. So I'll just say one more word about the Hashkafa. So I think the way it presented, I think that's a reasonable way to present it. There are others who see it differently. Ravasha Weiss, for example, I've heard from him a few times that he thinks that heteriska is basically a way to allow ribis and we've become okay with. So then, where does the Hashkafa come in and what's uh, going on? So essentially it goes back to the core. It's very similar to Prusbal and to things like that, that you have a core mitzvah of halva. And the Torah has a lot of other mitzvahs that are there to support the mitzvah of halva. So we say, halva is this key prime act of chesed, and it's very important. And it's so important that the Torah has all these mitzvahs that are there to support it. So you're not allowed to take rebis, you're not allowed to pressure the guy, and you have to cancel the loans and shviyas. You have all these mitzvahs that are all there to support the concept of halva. But theoretically, they could undermine the ikra mitzvah, because if it's going to be that because of all these protections, you don't want to be alone in the first place, so then the whole mitzvah is really going to get affected, and we know that Chazal throughout Shas have this concern of Shlotino Delos Neloven, that a lot of halachas are there in place, the fact that we have Bate Din, even without Smicha, a lot of things are in place, because we're very afraid that borrowers should not find anybody who's going to lend in. So this is a crucial value. This is apparently the meta value. The meta value is that you should be lending money and that borrowers should be able to find opportunities to lend. So as much as these other dinim are there to support it, but if they come to undermine it, we're more afraid of that. And that has a lot to do with Prisbal, especially because Prisbal involves dinim to Rabbanan. But we were more concerned that people wouldn't lend in the first place than upholding probably the rabbinic version of the idea of canceling loans with Manazet. So that reflects the same idea that most important is that we should preserve the 
act of lending and that there shouldn't be nilas dalas pifnelovin. So with this understanding, it shifts things over a little bit so that basically, yeah, heteriska is a big bidiyabed and we're not still thrilled about it, but if the alternative is that people aren't going to lend in the first place, so therefore we have become okay with it rather than let the Iker Mitzvah Daraiso fall apart. So it's a much less inspiring vision of heteriska, but it's a theoretical model as well. I think there's a lot of substance to the way we said it the first time, and uh, there's more of it, but again, when you're using it for chesed, that becomes a whole different story, but in the business context, I think the general attitude is to see it as essentially totally mutter, and I think the hashkafa, under the proper circumstances, can perhaps explain that as well. So I know we have Mr. Tarbis, we can't go over it all, so, uh, okay.